We stopped in Job chapter 19, just a couple verses shy last week of the end of the chapter. And what we need to look at is Job and where his friends are. And I entitled the message this morning, When Emotions Are Strained. And if you don't really understand the Hebrew and what's behind it, and I want to share it with you, you forget some of what Job is trying to say, because Job has just made a beautiful exclamation of the fact that I know that my Redeemer lives. And we spent a lot of time talking about the Redeemer, and I hope that you can look and say, He is my Redeemer. I personally put my faith and trust in Him. But Job doesn't stop there. Now, Job has an ulterior motive for being excited about his Redeemer living. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and regardless of what my friends have said about me and why I am where I am, He is going to exonerate me one day. He will look and tell you that I am not guilty of all the things that you said. And so as he gets to the end of this wonderful prophecy about the Redeemer and living and standing before him one day, we reach the end of verse 27. Look at chapter 19 and verse 27. He says there, my heart faints within me. Now how does that fit with his hope in a Redeemer? What is Job trying to say as he gets to the end of this chapter? And it's going to tie in with verses 28 and 29. He looks and he says, my heart faints within me. You see, the great adventure of faith, the testing of his faith that Job is going through, is having a toll on him. It's wearing him out. And when he looks and says, my heart faints within me, literally, if you were to translate this from the Hebrew, it would be something to the extent of, my kidneys failed or my kidneys are consumed within my bosom. Now we look at his Americans and say, what in the world is he talking about? You need to remember, back in the Hebrew days, we have this... Picture of all of our emotions come from what? The heart. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You know, you have a heart. You know your heart doesn't look like that? It's an organ inside us. And when the Hebrews looked at the the seat of their emotions, the heart would have been okay, but they felt it was much deeper. And so to them, the seat of the emotions was down in this kidney or liver area. But if you brought a Valentine's Day for your sweetheart and said, I love you from the bottom of my kidneys, it probably wouldn't go over well. If you told the... Hebrew people, my heart faints within me. They would say, well, what's wrong with your heart? They wouldn't get it. But what Job is trying to say is, I am emotionally drained. You ever been there? Sometimes as Christians, we feel guilty because, oh, I'm emotionally drained. This shouldn't happen to me, but it does. Life's trials can emotionally drain us. Struggles, even legitimate struggles that God sends into our heart and into our lives to strengthen our faith can emotionally drain us. And what we're going to see here, what we're going to be cautioned with here as we go through these next couple chapters this morning is, how do you handle life when that happens? And if you're not careful, when you're emotionally drained, you say and do some of the things that you most regret in all of life down the road. Because you just weren't at your best. You weren't at the top of your game. And here's Job, and he's admitting it right after this great exclamation about his Redeemer. He said, you know, my heart faints within me. I'm worn out. I'm emotionally drained. I'm physically drained. In with that phrase is the idea that I'm frustrated. Because here are three of my best friends who are supposed to comfort me, and they've done anything but comfort. And so Job is struggling with all of those things. And the first thing he does, after saying, my heart faints within me, is he has a warning for his friends. Now again, we're not there. It's hard to pick up all the, the, the voice inflections and what's going on. But as I see this, I really believe that Job has a genuine concern for his friends. 
Is he a little irritated with them? Yeah, he is. That's why he said, my heart faints within me. You know, could he smack some of them up the side of the head and say, get with the program, you're supposed to be comforting with me? He's going to kind of do that in the next chapter. But in the midst of this, he looks at his friends and he says, here's my warning. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. And we're going to go to what he's warning in a minute, but he's looking at his friends and saying, if you're going to keep coming after me like this, and had they come mercilessly after Job, hour after hour, day after day, saying, Job, you got sin in your life. And that's what he means by the second part, that the root of the matter is found in him. They're looking at Job and they're saying, you got to be sinful, Job. And Job's trying to say, that's not the problem, guys, so help me figure it out. And they're stuck. You know, they've got one tune and they're on it. It's stuck in their head. And they keep coming back to it. And Job said, if that's where you're going to be, if that's where you're going to land, if that's the best you can do, be afraid of the sword. Now, what is Job trying to say here? Job's not about to pull his sword and go after his friends. But what is he saying? He says, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment. Job looks at his friends and say, if you're not going to get this right and you're going to keep hounding me when I'm a righteous man, then be afraid because the sword of God's judgment is going to be upon you. You see what's happened to me. You claim it's God's judgment, but I didn't do anything, but you're asking for it. That's what he's telling his friends here. Be careful how you deal with this situation, because God will judge, and he'll judge those who deal falsely. Now, is Job right? Are his friends dealing falsely with him? Yeah, they are. Do they know they're dealing falsely with him? And this is where we're going to learn something from this passage. No, they don't. They self-righteously think they've got the answer. Well, they sat around for seven days watching Job. Of course they came to the right conclusion, didn't they? And, And they know some spiritual truths. They know some doctrine that they're applying to Job's situation, and they're pretty sure they got it nailed. And do they? No, Job's giving them a legitimate warning because God's pretty irritated with these guys by the end of the book. And we're going to see that. We're going to see it in only a few weeks. So don't despair that we're never going to get to the end of Job. We're getting there. But as we get there, Job warns them and says, the, this, the judgment of God's upon you. And there's some important, important things for us to consider. Again, now we have the benefit of the New Testament. To see the teachings of Christ and the teachings of Paul that surround this stuff. But number one, when you think of Job's friends and you kind of apply this, say, what am I supposed to do with all this? We can become like Job's friends. Even if you're walking close with the Lord, you can become like one of Job's friends. What is the problem with Job's friends? Again, we talked a couple weeks ago. They've jumped to a conclusion. And they're sure their conclusion is right and it's wrong. Matthew talks about this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and this is the great phrase that is most often misinterpreted and misused in the scripture, but in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, when do you often hear that phrase? Who uses that phrase? In our story, who do you think would use that phrase? Job to his friend, Judge not lest you be judged. Because you got it wrong. And basically he's saying that a little bit more eloquently and with a lot more poetic justice. The sword of God and the judgment of God is going to be upon you if you keep this up. Because you're judging. But what did Christ mean by that when he tells us to judge not lest we be judged? Should we not help people that are struggling? Should we not confront folks like it says in the book of Hebrews if they're in sin? 
Or the book of Galatians, that if a weaker brother falls into sin, should we not try to bear his burdens and help him to where he needs to be? So what does Jesus mean, judge not lest you be judged? Well, he goes on to explain it to us, and this is exactly what Job's trying to explain to his friends. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Some of us in our quest for godliness and holiness are awfully judgmental of the people that we live with, that we live around. We can look and find the errors, the problems, the sin in somebody else's life a lot quicker than we ever identify our own. And that's where Jesus is going with this. But he's saying, be careful making judgments. Why? Because you don't know the whole story. Does that fit with Job at all? Job's friends are making all those judgments because they don't know the whole story. The problem is a lot of good, sound, fundamental people do the same thing to one another at times. And Jesus is looking here in this passage. and says, be careful. Don't judge. And he says, for with the measure you judge, you will be judged. In other words, with the harshness that you're using, with the ruler that you're using, with the standards that you're laying on somebody else, be careful because God's going to use the same standard to judge your life. And what will he find? And most of us can't see that. You say, well, I can see it. Well, that's not what Jesus thought. That's why he went into the whole story about remove the beam out of your own eye before trying to get the speck out of a friend's eye. He said, make sure you're not being judgmental. You're going after somebody. And Job's looking at his friends and saying, here's the problem. Now, he didn't have Matthew 7. I'll bet if Job had Matthew 7, the end of chapter 19 would say, judge not lest you be judged. But what he is saying is that principle. And it goes for all of us. We do a lot better if we'd look in the mirror before we look at our neighbor out the window. And Jesus Christ is bringing it back to us. We're getting that in the story of Job, and we need to be perfectly aware. Where are we? Because we can become very passionate, sometimes militant, when we think we're right in passing judgment on other people. You ever been there? And Jesus is looking and saying, judge not in that way. You don't know the whole story. Be careful when you make judgments. Not that you can't help somebody else, but be very careful when you do it that you're not jumping to conclusions. And Paul kind of deals with this as well in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, when he says, so then each of us will give an account of whom to God? You will not give an account for your spouse. You will not give an account for your neighbor. You will not give an account for your pastor. But you will give an account for yourself before God. We will stand before God one day and give an account. And it's interesting if you look, that verse in Romans chapter 14 is found in a very interesting section. You know where it's found? The weaker and the stronger brother who are arguing about things that Paul said in the end of the day, be convinced in your own mind, but don't argue with each other. Don't be looking around. Don't be pointing fingers. Don't be making judgments about others. And he said, because what you need to be doing is taking care of yourself, number one, for the purpose of, Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I bring that up because when you look at Job and his three friends, do you see much peace? Do you see mutual upbuilding in this? And Job's being torn down by his friends for something he didn't even do because they jumped to a conclusion. And Job's friends are, are a mess in all of this. And at the same time, is Job being upbuilt? What is Job's major difficulty at this point in the book? 
Have you gotten your mind around that? It, it, it is the why. He wants to know the why. But his major difficulty even goes deeper than that. And we're going to see that in the next two chapters. Job's major difficulty is he's got questions when he looks around about what's happening and what he thinks about God and he can't answer them. They don't make sense. And what Job wants is for his friends to come up alongside and help him make sense. And what Job's friends want to do, they want a quick counseling session. Job, if you'll just confess, get it right, we're done. And it's not working. And so we need to make sure that when we get together, when we look at other folks, when we think about other folks in their lives, when we pray for other folks, are we doing what makes for peace and mutual upbringing? Should we deal with sin? Yeah, we should. We should start with dealing it within our own lives and helping others who fall. But we need to be careful if we get into this judgmental period. And then not only be careful how you judge others, but the other thing we're learning as we go through this, and we're going to see again this week, be careful how you use your words. Words are powerful. Words can heal or words can destroy. They can cut very, very deeply. And Jesus put it this way again in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you say what you say? You ever look, you ever talk to somebody, and I've said it before. You know, you look and you say something, you think, why did I say that? I, I, I didn't have a filter. It came in, it went out. Well, where did it come from when it came in? Jesus said it came from down here. Keep the heart right. That's why we go back to the fact that we need to keep our own sin account right so that our words are helpful, so that our words are what they ought to be. And then he goes on further to say this, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good and the evil out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, listen, on the day of judgment, what's Job talking about? God's going to judge. He's going to judge his friends for what? Because of their words. And Jesus Christ said, you know what? Job had it right. He said, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Can you get your mind around that? Every careless word. I'm going to give an account to God. Now, praise the Lord if you know Jesus Christ, the Savior. If he is your Redeemer, you won't be judged for sin, but you're going to stand before God one day and give account. Were your words building up or were they tearing down? God's going to be, and do you want to stand before the Lord and give an account? Well, you know, Lord, it wasn't my fault. I was just, genetically, I got one of these mouths that just runs. Nobody's going to say that before the Lord. And you're going to look, and all of your careless words, you know, those words that you say when you're talking to one friend and you talk about, and you're talking about somebody else. And you're judging them, Matthew chapter 7. And they walk up behind you. Has that ever happened to you? I'm embarrassed. It's happened to me, and I feel terrible because afterwards I shouldn't have said that. It wasn't important. Sometimes it wasn't even right. But relationships are strained and ruined. And that's where Job is. His relationships are strained and ruined. And they're not talking behind his back. They're giving it to him right to his face. And so all of these things we need to keep in account. One, be careful how you judge because you may not have all the facts. And number two, be careful how you use your words. Be careful how you speak to others about other folks especially. Be careful how you speak to people who, as Job's friends, are your source of annoyance and frustration. Because we will give an account for every idle word. So as Job gets into this and warns his friends, that's what he's saying. And again, Job's advice is good. It's no wonder that at the end of this book, God meets with Job, and yes, Job has some things in his heart that God has to straighten out. But God basically looks at Job and says, Job, you told it right about who I am and how I work, and those friends of yours, you better pray for them because they didn't, and they're in trouble with me. 
And Job's warning him here about it right there. And so what we see here, the nice thing is, this is Zophar's last parting shot. Say, oh, I'm getting tired of all of these discussions that are going on. Well, Zophar's going to speak, and then he's going to be done. So we'll be done with Zophar. But as he does that, in chapter 20, he's coming right off the heels of what Job just said. Be careful about your words. God will judge. And Zophar is so arrogant in what he believes. He believes he's right. He has to be right. And he doesn't even pay any heed to that. He goes right back to where he started from. Zophar, as we look at chapter 20, he's deeply disturbed by Job's accusations that they're wrong. So in his parting shot, Zophar is going to deal with that. Zophar also is frustrated with Job. And what we find about Zophar is a, a sad thing. Zophar doesn't know how to comfort Job because he's jumped to such a conclusion he can't step back. Zophar doesn't have the answers to any of Job's questions. And he doesn't even try. And so I look at this and I think, don't be like Zophar. Don't be the know-it-all in the room who doesn't hear what anybody else has to say. In fact, that's where it's going to drive Job by the end of this chapter. He's going to say, can't you just Listen. Often our mouth is running so much that our brain never hears anything else that's going on in the room. And and don't be like that. That's what gets Zophar into trouble here. And indirectly, he's rejecting Job's assertion that God will appear as his redeemer. He's going to go after Job in chapter 20 and basically say, God's going to judge you for being a sinner right after Job said, I can't wait to see my redeemer. He's trying to drag Job back down. And this speech is a reaction to Job. And then it's just, again, he goes back to the fact, the sure fate of every evildoer. Zophar's whole idea is summed up in chapter 20, verse 5. Look at chapter 20, verse 5. It says, Thus the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment. Doesn't that sound wonderful? It it, it, kind of ought to be in our mind, shouldn't it? If somebody's evil, how long should he get away with it? What Job is saying, it, it would... Zophar's saying is evil people don't get away with it for very long. Has that been your experience? I look with Job and sometimes I scratch my head and I think, there's an awful lot of evil people that it just looks like they're getting away with it. And then he goes on and he says, the joy of the godless will be but for a moment. Are there evil, wicked, godless people that look like they're having a good time out there? Some of you, I can't shake my head, yes, that would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? No, it's true. There are certain aspects of sin that's fun or people wouldn't sin. If sin was painful all the time, why would we do it? And here they are, they're out there, and they're sinning, and they're doing their own thing, and they're not paying attention to God, and they're getting away with it. And Zophar says, that doesn't happen. Be careful with your theology. Now, is there a day when the evil and the wicked will have their time cut short? But it's not necessarily on your timetable or mine. Because when somebody's wicked, especially if their wickedness impacts us, when do we want it judged? Now! And is the Almighty God in charge or is he not? Does God miss things? I talked about this before, but those of you who have kids and grandkids, you ever miss what's going on and not know what's happening? You know somebody got in trouble, you can tell by the look on your face and you just don't know who did what? God's not like that. He's got an account of everything. He knows, and he will take care of things. And their joy will be gone, but it's going to happen on God's timing, not on ours. And Job is so caught up in himself, and as Zophar does all of these things, telling him, Job's having that problem. We're going to see that as he talks, but Zophar's saying, you know what? That is the truth. That's what happens. 
Then he describes the wicked. And we're just going to quickly look at some of his description because it impacts Job in the next chapter. Zophar looks and he says, you know, as far as the wicked, his success, though it be lofty, will perish. Are there wicked people who are well-to-do in this world? Have political power? Seem to have it all? They've got three cars and they only drive one, but they've got three just to have two. Extra ones sitting around. You know, they've got big homes and they've got vacation homes and they've got all these things going. You say, I ought to have that. I've been godly and, and I don't have all that. What's going on? And that, that's where this Job and his friends are struggling with all these things and trying to figure it out because they got their eyes in the wrong place. It says, he goes on, says, the evil sins secretly and it'll turn to cobra's venom on them. It'll kill them eventually. Is he right? Yeah, it will. I mean, look at what we looked at in Revelation. But that's in God's time, not in Job's and not in Job's friends. He also says that nothing that he loves will be left when God rains his wrath on him. Again, is that true? Yeah, there's a day when the wrath of God is going to fall upon wicked men and there's a huge price to be paid. What should that do for us? It's one of those struggles you have when you're reading and studying the book of Revelation and you see where we're going. Because you look and say, the wicked are going to have their day and God will judge. And there's a part within us that rejoices at that. Is there not? Because God will be vindicated. And he ought to be vindicated. And evil ought to be judged. But I hope there's a part within you that's like Jesus Christ who looked over Jerusalem and said, oh, that I would bring you by as a hen with the chicks. But you would not. And his heart was broken. We ought to be broken over evil people who need Jesus Christ. It ought to spur us on to share the gospel. But we get back to this and he says, not only that, but nothing awaits him but consuming fire, shameful exposure, and total loss. Job 20, 26-28. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasure. A fire not fanned will devour him. And what is left in his tent will be consumed. The heaven will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possession of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. And all that's true. What's Job's struggle? It didn't happen today. God's timing wasn't Job's timing. What's his friend's struggle? It happened to Job. So what does that say about Job? You must be wicked. This stuff has happened to you and it's happened now. And he finishes off in Job 20, 29. And this is Zophar's last words and probably thankfully so. But he says here, This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Is that true? Is judgment and destruction and eternal punishment God's decreed heritage for the wicked who do not turn to Christ? It is. We don't hear much preaching on that anymore. But he's right about that. What he's wrong about is who is he trying to tack in with the wicked there? He's looking at Job and saying, you better repent because it looks to me like this is your heritage. Was that Job's heritage? What had God already said about him? There's nobody like him, blameless, fears me. And his friends have gotten it so wrong that they're attacking him like that. And Zophar is so sure that he's right. That he looks at Job at the end of this and basically with that last thread, he said, Job, you just need to get with the program. Understand that I'm right. Repent before God. Get it right. Do what you need to do. And that's Zophar's last words. Isn't that kind of sad? Because Zophar's not theologically totally wrong. But he's got no idea what's going on in Job's life. 
And so we get to Job's response in all this. And this is where we want to spend just a few moments. Job doesn't look... Now, he does say a few things to his friends again. Um, and that's a nice way of putting it. And Job, who just warned that your words are going to give you judgment, he's going to get judged by God at the end of the book and have to take care of it. And Job's going to. But you look at Job, and he starts out Job chapter 21 after this eloquent speech about why he's so wicked. And this is what he says, and this will be a paraphrase, but he says, okay, let's go through this one more time. Listen carefully to my words. What is part of what has led Job to say that, that my heart is just fainting within me? He's not being heard. He wants help. Job's not so arrogant that he doesn't want help, but his, parents, his friends haven't listened to him. He said, let this be your consolation to me in verses 2 and 3. Try actually listening to what I say for a change. Be careful that that's not you. And again, that happens when we just think we have all the answers before we even hear all the situation. And he goes on to say this, hear me out, and when I'm done, proceed with your scorn. How much hope does Job have for his friends? He's pretty much given up on them at this point as far as they're going to get it. But he says, look, at least hear me out and then go back to beating me up. That's what he says in verse 3. Because these friends just aren't getting it. His friends are getting all over him, point after point. And so Job asks them some very, very careful questions, hoping they'll begin thinking about answers. Verse 7. You ever had this question? Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Is that a good question? Does that ever bother you? Bothers me. Yeah, I look at some of the people who are in charge in Washington, and they're some of the most wicked people I know, some of them, and I think, God, how'd you let them get there? Why don't you just take them out? You can do that. I know you can. I can't. It's not legal. But you can, so why do you allow this? Why don't you at least take them down? Why do you allow them to have power? And then some of the people that are dying at 90 and 95 years of age that are just despicable, evil, wicked people who don't follow God, and you say, how does that happen And my Christian buddy dies in his 40s or 50s that loved the Lord and dies of cancer? Does that sound fair to you? Does that ever make you wonder if God's even paying attention? That's where Job is. He's looking around, he's saying, I know what you're telling me, Zophar, that the wicked are always judged, and the righteous always are getting blessed, but then why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? It doesn't fit with your theology. Zophar has no answer. It goes on and he says, Why are their houses safe and God's rod doesn't fall on them? You're going to start seeing a reason behind the questions. Why would Job ask, Why did the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? What happened to his family? Most of them are gone. They're not reaching old age. What happened to Job's prestige and power? When he lost his wealth and he lost his family and he's sitting in a heap on the ashes outside the city, it's gone. And he's looking say, he does have kind of a why me attitude. Because he can't get by what God's doing. So he asks the second question because whose houses weren't safe? His kids all died in his son's house. He goes on, he has another question that never gets answered by his friends. Even though life seems unfair. Why do they breed their animals and they multiply? And their children are numerous and happy. Again, what did Job lose? He lost all of his livestock and he's looking at these wicked people who continue to flourish. And he's like, how's this happening? It doesn't fit Zophar or Bildad's or Eliphaz's theology for that matter. 
And he's looking and getting no answer. And why are their children numerous and happy? And I think this hit hard at the bottom of Job's grief at that point. Ten children are gone. He lost them in a moment. And he looks at these wicked people who have large families getting together. And he says, how can this be? He goes on. Doesn't stop his questions there. His next question. How come they spend their days in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace? Does it ever look like that with wicked folks? You think about the story. We we talked about it earlier a couple weeks ago. But the story about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived his life in prosperity. And as far as everybody could tell, when he passed, he went to the grave in peace. But what happened on the other side? Everything that Zophaz and Eliphaz and Zophar and Eliphaz and Bildad believed, it happened. But it happened in God's time. And so Job's looking and saying, I'm not going to spend my days in prosperity, even though I was blameless and loved the Lord and feared God. Look where I am. I have nothing left. I'm not going to go down to the grave in peace. In fact, he's been begging for days for God to just take him home because life is so miserable he can't handle it anymore. He just wants out of it. And so he's looking at all these things. And have his friends answered any of these questions? Not a one. He goes on and he says, why is God not judging in a timely manner? Verses 17 through 21. And that's that's at the heart of what's happening here. He looks and he says, if God's truly going to judge, why not now? And again, this is where we have to be careful with our focus because as Job, who was a man blameless before God at one time, and it was a man who said, God, Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He looks and he says at the end of this section in verses 19 through 21, if God is not going to judge the wicked right away, and you're going to look at me like the preacher just did in the pulpit and say God's going to judge in his time. He basically, in chapter in 19, verses 19 through 21, is going to look and say, well, what good is a God like that? Does Job love God? He does. Does Job fear God? He does. So why would you make such a statement looking at verses 19 through 21? And take a quick look at that. Verses 19 through 21. You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. He looks and says, you say God's waiting, and I'm saying if he's really God, let him take care of it now so that they know that God is righteous, so that they know implication that I am righteous and this isn't my fault. Let their own eyes see their destruction, verse 20, and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. How much compassion does Job have left for the wicked? And how did Job get here? And again, it's a lesson that we need to learn. You say, well, we've heard some of these things over and over, but we need to take the lessons to heart on some of these things. That's why God repeats them over and over through these discussions. But as Job looks, how did he get there? Job lost his focus on whom? On God. His focus was on his lost family, his lost goods. All of those things that at first he said, well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But then he thought about what the Lord took away and he had trouble dealing with it. And God's going to deal with Job's heart for that before the end of this book. But he looks at all these things. He said, if God's really God and if he's going to be who he ought to be, then let him judge now. In verses 20 through 28, why do the wicked get away with all this? And Job, as he brings his questions into being, he doesn't ask if these are really true questions. He just assumes this is right. And are Job's observations correct as far as Job goes? There are wicked people who prosper. 
There are wicked people who live to old age and seem to go down to their graves in peace. Now, it's interesting, and we won't take the time with the time we have. But if you read some of the biographies, and I've got a book at home that's basically called The Last Words of Sinners and Saints. It's amazing how many of these people who look like they're going to the grave in peace at the end realize that they are in despair. They have nothing to hope for. And Job can't see that right now because he can't see God. Verse 29 of this passage, where we finish up for this morning, he's going to say, Have you not asked those who travel the roads, and do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity? Job looks and says, they're spared. And then he gets to the end of his whole saying here, verse 34, and says, How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Does Job want his friends to stick around anymore? If Job had the money left, he'd have paid for the fare. He'd have called an Uber for him. He'd have got him out of there because Job's like, you've got nothing for me. You've got no answers. You're accusing me falsely. Job is frustrated. Job is at the end of himself. His emotions are just drained. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's beginning to falter in some areas. And again, it's going to have to be dealt with. But his friends have not done a bit to help him. As we conclude, can we think about just a few of the things we talked about today? If you want to be a better friend than these free men, what do you need to do? How do you comfort folk? How do you give them the word of wisdom that they need? Number one, be careful when you find yourself judging others. It's a very dangerous road to be on. It's usually a very arrogant road to be on. It's usually a very condescending road to be on. And it usually leads to difficulties and problems. Number two, watch your words. Even when you're right, watch your words. Aren't we told in Scripture, let your words be with grace, seasoned with salt. See, I can be salty in my remark. No, that's not what it means. It means we ought to be able to give out the truth in such a way that it's a little bit more palatable when we love people. Now, the gospel is always going to offend people who don't believe in the truth, and we can't help that, but we can help how we approach things and how we approach folks, and especially how we approach brothers and sisters who are in Christ. And remember that you'll give an account to God for every idle word. How many idle words did you utter this week that you may have to give an account and not want to give account for? You know the problem with idle words? I'm guessing you don't remember most of them. I don't. I prayed this morning as I'm going through it, God, help me to control my tongue so that I don't have to look back and wonder what those idle words were. Use my mouth to glorify you. Use my heart to have compassion for others rather than being judgmental. Because if it starts with a judgmental heart, the words will be wrong. And so all this is being given to us from the book of Job. And then the last thing, and maybe the most important for us as we walk through life as Christians, don't lose your focus on God, your Redeemer. When Job lost his focus from above and was caught up with all the circumstances around him, Job faltered. Job struggled. Job got to the point where he said, I am emotionally and physically drained. I don't know where to go from here. And God's going to tell him where to go at the end of the book. And the idea is going to be, Job, where's your focus? Why is Job so caught up with the wicked? Because his focus is here. If you're caught up with your focus there, God's going to take care of all that. And you just worry about where your life is before him. Be careful when judging. Watch your words. Don't lose your focus on your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the lessons that can be learned, even through some of these difficult conversations that just seem to go on and on in this book. Lord, help us to find the principles that are there for us. 
And Lord, especially as we approach the end of this book, I pray that you'll open our hearts and minds because we're about to get chapter after chapter about who our God is, how our God really does work, how that should impact our heart and our lives and our vision of who you are. And Lord, the way we react to circumstances. So open our hearts and lives to this, Lord. I pray that as we finish this book of Job in the coming weeks, that you will open our eyes to see who you are. Not just for an academic exercise, but God, help us to see who you are, that our relationship with you may be what it needs to be. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.